Welcome to Forcing Function Hour, a conversation series exploring the boundaries of peak performance. Join me, Chris Sparks, as I interview elite performers to reveal principles, systems, and strategies for achieving a competitive edge in business. If you are an executive or investor ready to take yourself to the next level, download my workbook at experimentwithoutlimits.com. For all episodes and show notes, go to forcingfunctionhour.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to the eighth edition of Lunch Hour. My name is Chris Sparks. I'm the founder of The Forcing Function, and I'm going to be your host and your MC for today. And so those of you guys who don't know, Lunch Hour is a conversation series where we explore the boundaries of performance. So uh, if you are curious about reaching the next level in your performance, you have come to the right place. Now, Spencer is a very, very exciting guest for me. Uh, Spencer is a serial founder, mathematician, and social scientist with a focus on improving human well-being. And so a few things that Spencer has founded. First, um, his startup boundary Spark Wave, which creates novel software products from scratch. A couple of those software products include Uplift, which is an app that employs cognitive behavioral therapy to help people with depression, MindEase, an app that gives you exercises to help relieve your stress and anxiety. And finally, and most relevant for today, clearthinking.org, which has 40 tools and training programs that have been taken by hundreds of thousands of people to help improve their decision-making. Spencer writes pretty often on his website, spencergreenberg.com. He has 100 essays at this point, which is pretty incredible on how to think better, live happier life. And super exciting announcement today. Spencer's just just launched today, I think, right? His uh, his podcast, Clear Thinking, with the initial 10 episodes. So go ahead and check that out. We're going to put the links to all of those in the show notes. Spencer and I met through a friend of ours, Kate Tolo. Um, shout out to Kate in New York City. Um, we're both part of what we call like the rationality community. It's like one of these uh, subcultures. If you remember our conversation with Taylor is, isn't the world great that there are people who come together who identify around how can we think better and live better lives by being more rational human beings. Isn't it amazing? Um, Spencer threw outstanding events in New York, which have now moved online. So if you have the opportunity to attend one of those, highly recommend it. In my view, Spencer's superpower is to translate the best findings from psychological science into actionable tools and frameworks where we can now apply these findings and thus live better lives. And so today we have a very important topic and thus there's no one who I'd rather be having it with. So real quick, what to expect today? Uh, The title for this conversation we are calling the sum of your decisions. So it seems that there's really two things that determine the course of your life how lucky you are, and the quality of your decision-making. Obviously, only one of these is under your control, and thus your life trajectory is a direct sum of the decisions that you make. And thus, our simple and you know, small, reasonably, goal, reasonably small goal is to help you transform the course of your life. So you know, if you're listening, um, I would love to just pause with me. I'm gonna take a 30-second pause to just think about a decision that you have right now, something that's pending for you, something that's top of mind. And as we talk today, keeping this decision in mind, think about, is this relevant? Is is this something that could help me make a better decision? 
I'm going to just give a 30 second pause here. Okay, good. Hopefully you have their, your decision in mind. Um, so without further ado, I want to hand things off to Spencer. Uh, Spencer, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks, Spencer. I think a good place to start is, you know, why should we improve our decision-making process? Why, why is it important? And is decision-making even something that we can improve? Yeah, well, the way I look at it is I like to use a kind of embodied metaphor for this. Like imagine that you're taking this long path and you're trying to get to the top of a mountain, right? And like the top of the mountain represents your goals. The decisions are all these branching points about how we're trying to get there. And, you know, if you, if you think about it from the point of view of this metaphor, it obviously is going to depend a lot on what decisions you make, whether you, A, get to the top of the mountain efficiently, or B, whether you get there at all, right? So we're constantly making decisions throughout our lives, and these basically determine whether we get the things we want, whether we are happy, whether we achieve our goals, and so on. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's important to start with this notion of process, right? So when we talk about improving decisions, we talk about improving our decision-making process. Now, I think this is particularly relevant right now. It seems to me that most people, including maybe some of these people who control our economy or run our country, seem to think that a good decision is a decision that turns out well, and a bad decision is a decision that doesn't turn out so well. Um, you know, I'm curious, could you share why is it important to focus on the process by which we make our decisions rather than the outcomes of our decisions? Yeah, so I'll say I think this topic is a little tricky because the outcome of a decision does provide evidence for whether the decision was good or bad, right? So for example, you know, if I have a conversation and someone screams at me, the fact that they screamed at me is probably evidence that I did something wrong in that conversation. Um, on the other hand, when we're dealing with an uncertain world where there's probabilistic outcomes, where even if we do things just right, we sometimes will lose or fail. In those cases, the fact that the, there was a bad outcome doesn't necessarily mean that we made a bad decision. So, so I would just draw that distinction. Uh, it depends on how noisy the system is. So in a system where, where the system where it's completely deterministic, like if you have good input, you get good output, then the outcome really does tell us whether we did a, a good job. But much of life is not like that. Much of life um, is probabilistic, where even if you do everything right, to the best of your ability, the outcome might not be good. And therefore, when you're thinking about did I make a good decision? You have to evaluate it based on how you thought about the decision, based on the information you had available, what strategies you used to make the decision. You can't just look at whether the decision turned out well. Um, so, so I would just draw that distinction. Like, so in poker, for example, because poker is such a probabilistic game, yeah, my understanding is that, that at least some poker players have a rule of thumb that when you're discussing a hand, you're not even supposed to say how it turned out, whether you won or lost, because it's just a distraction from the more important thing, which is how did you think about making that decision? Yeah, and that, that's, that's a great way of putting it. Um, so in the poker world, and I think in the world in general, I, I love the stoicism notion of you know, what's in your control, what's out of your control, that wisdom comes from knowing the difference. And in the case of discussing a strategy of a hand, for example, that because the results bias are thinking so much, it's better to just put that to the side and think about, well, what, what were we considering when we were making this decision? And that allows to get 
into more interesting paths of inquiry as far as, well, what, what was the information that was relevant? Was there anything that we might have missed? Um, and, you know, it, it just a lead, it leads to much more productive modes of inquiry. Uh, I would love to, to pull in on this, this notion of, of probabilistic versus deterministic. So let's say that we are operating in a probabilistic world, which is, which is most of the time, and we have, we have a result. How, how do we take that result into account for future decision-making? Maybe, maybe pulling in some, some Bayesian notions here. Is, like, is there a time that the result is more relevant than others? Yeah, I mean, so you can ask the question, how likely would I be to get this outcome if my decision was the correct one versus if it wasn't. And so if the if the probability of getting that outcome is only a little bit higher if your decision was bad than if it was good, then that's not much evidence for your decision being bad. On the other hand, if there was, let's say you have a bad outcome and, it, and if you consider, well, how likely would this bad outcome be to occur if I made a really bad decision compared to if I made a really good decision? And it turns out there's a huge difference in that ratio. So it's much, much more likely if you if you made a bad decision-making process, then that means that the outcome actually can tell you a lot about whether you did a good job. And so that that's that's just a kind of, I mean, it's kind of technical, but it's how you formalize the question of how much should you update your beliefs based on a bad outcome, uh, as opposed to, uh, oh, I have a bad outcome, but I really it doesn't really mean anything about my process. I also just want to point out that in a lot of realistic situations, like let's say, you're doing a work project or, you know, you're running a company or, or, or whatever. A lot of times it's almost impossible to be totally confident we're making the right decision. Uh, so, so it's kind of fundamentally limited by the information we have available. And so a lot of times actually even shooting to be 99% confident is not a good use of time because it's so hard to achieve. And so we might say, okay, for this decision, I'm satisfied with being 80% confident, but that means that I'm assuming 20% of the time the outcome is going to go against me, and that's fine. That's actually that actually could be optimal because the to get go from 80% to 99% confident might take way more time than is warranted by that the you know the importance of that decision. Uh, that's so good, and a couple of things I want to I want to pull on there. You know, first I think illustrating the importance of calibrating ahead of time. And this is something that I do a lot with my investor clients is, you know, what's your conviction level on this trade? Or even just with a morning routine, let's say, you know, zero to hundred, how confident are you that you're going to do your morning routine tomorrow? And the cool thing is once you've put a number on something, you know, how likely is the outcome, you can start to think about, well, what would change my perception of that outcome? Is there something that I can do in the present to increase my likelihood to increase my confidence? And I think if I'm paraphrasing correctly, you're saying that, hey, if we think if we're 90% confident that something is going to go well, and it goes well, that doesn't tell us all that much. Um, but if we think it's 90% that it's going to go well, and it goes really poorly, that's a much stronger indicator that we might have missed something. And we want to look, go back and see what we could have missed. Am I, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, yeah, and there, there's like a kind of more formal technical version of that. But the, but the, uh, the gist is, uh, there are some situations where the it going well or badly does not hinge that much on whether you made a good decision. For example, like a good decision might mean you win sixty percent of the time, and a bad decision means you win forty percent of the time. That's not that big a difference, and so you can't learn very much from it going badly. In other situations, making a good decision you should win, let's say ninety percent of the time, and a bad decision you'd you only win 10% of the time, then the outcome actually tells you a lot about your decision-making process. 
Well, it's and something else that you brought up that I thought was really cool is, you know, I, th- I think Bezos really popularized this recently um, around Amazon saying that, hey, if you're waiting for more than 70% of the information, you're waiting too long. That, as you said, as, you, as your confidence level approaches 100%, that, that marginal information becomes more and more expensive. And just the concept that most decisions are pretty reversible and really don't matter all that much that we tend to you know, make molehills out of mountains. Uh, something I like to refer to is it seems like many decisions are kind of, do I eat chicken for dinner or eat steak for dinner? I mean, really that the cost of not making a decision is more, is more costly than you know, having one option over the other. So you know, maybe I would love to know how you think about you know, how can we tell which decisions are important and which decisions aren't so important? Yeah, so I think there's a, uh, at least a few criteria we can look at. The one that, that you mentioned is very important is reversibility. When a decision is easily reversible, we need to be much less confident than we're correct because we can try it. If it goes badly, we just reverse it. Okay, uh, you know, the cost is not that high. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is just how plausible is it that we can really get confident? So it's like the cost of collecting information. If you're collecting information in an efficient way, you're going to first try to get you know, quickly get the information that gives you the most confidence. Then if you need more confidence, you're going to try to get like the next easiest information that's going to help boost your confidence and so on. But if you're using this process of trying to get the, the easiest to collect information that's most useful first, you will get a diminishing marginal return. So every increment, additional increment of confidence is going to become harder and harder to attain. Um, and so for any given decision, there's going to be that trade-off curve between like, okay, given how the difference between me making the correct decision and me making the wrong decision um, and comparing that to like how much, you know, how, how difficult it is to get a, additional information, you know, that's, that's going to change things a lot. Um, and then of course, there's just the, the factor that of just how much is on the line, right? Like many decisions, there's just very, very little on the line. And so what I would say to people, I think a lot of people spend too much effort uh, on decisions where there's not much on the line. But then when there's a, some, a huge amount on the line, they don't put enough effort into it. Um, you know, a, a simple example of this is that people might spend, you know, an hour deciding what to move, movie to watch tonight and also spend an hour deciding what mattress to buy. And if you think about that, the, the movie choice is going to like affect two hours of your life. You know, OK, maybe you'll enjoy it somewhat more because you spent longer on it. But you're basically investing an hour to spend two hours, right? Uh, the mattress, you might have that for, you know, seven years or something. And like, actually, if you don't like your mattress, that could be a huge pain. And maybe you're going to sleep worse. And maybe, you know, even if you sleep like 5% worse, actually accumulated over many years, that's actually a pretty big deal. Um, so that's just, just, just kind of one example to help illustrate how we sometimes like get the amount of research just wildly wrong. And then, you know, even more so when it comes to something like, you know, is this the right life partner for me? Right. You think about how consequential that is. Um, and so that's what you, you know, what you want to basically learn to flag the really consequential decisions and make sure to really invest in them. Uh, and you want to make, and on the other side, you want to kind of notice when you're spinning your wheels on an unimportant decision and just say, okay, I'm going to give myself one more minute to decide that I'm just going to go with whatever I think's best after one minute. Yeah. Two things that you said there that I really like. Um, so you know, first <laughs> recognizing that we mess it up on both ends, that we spend too much time on inconsequential decisions and not enough time on decisions that really matter. And so knowing which is which is, is critically important because we tend to just average that out. And it seems like a really good 
way of thinking about what are the decisions that are super consequential is how long are the, the consequences, the benefits or cost of this decision going to compound. So, you know, the mattress that you're sleeping on every night for decades or the person that you're spending potentially your life with or the person that you are founding a company with or your career, this, these sort of things really deserve the extra time because that one change cascades into a whole decision tree, a whole path of alternate realities that all lead back to that original Genesis decision. Um, you know, something else that you said is like these, uh, it's one of my favorite recommendations is just to set a timer. As you said, you, you, you give yourself one minute to make the decision or one that I find a lot of fun is uh, for a while I travel around with a, a, a dice in my uh, pocket. And so I would just roll a die because, uh, you know, just something about the finality of it as well, whatever comes up, that's what I'm going to do, allows me to just pick an option and move on. Um, is, is there anything like that that you've used for these, you know, relatively routine, like make a decision to move on type things? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, you know, I started thinking about this a lot when, uh, I remember, I actually remember the first time I was really thinking about this was, I was with a friend of mine who's like high powered lawyer. She got a gift certificate for as a president or something for a bookstore. And we were in the bookstore and she spent like an hour and a half trying to decide what to spend this on and was like really clearly not enjoying it. Like she was stressing out over it. And I was like, you know, you make more money than this in like 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, so that was, that was really made it visceral uh, to me. Um, one th so one thing I do uh, if I, um, which I, which I find helpful, I don't know if everyone would find helpful, but I use a system called prediction book where I actually predict how things will turn out. And I try to log in there whenever it's important thing. So you, so in addition to predicting like which way it'll go, I actually predict the probability in there. And then it reminds me, sends me an email when uh, you know I'm supposed to know the answer. And so I find that nice because it kind of gives me a sense of how good I am at like making predictions about things. And it gives me more trust in my decision-making processes. And it's like, oh, you know, I'm 90% confident that this is the right thing to do. And like, because I've made enough of these predictions, like I have a decent level of trust that that means it's probably going to happen. You know, whereas, whereas I think if you don't trust your processes because you haven't, you, you know, you're not, get to, you're not at the point where you, you think, well, if I'm pretty confident, this is probably right. It actually can send you spinning your wheels a lot longer. Yeah, there's, there's a similar exercise in the book, uh, how to measure anything where these, there's given these types of events, you know, how many, how many apples can you fit inside of a 747? Um, you know, how many um, teacups would it take to reach the top of the Empire State Building types of things and giving your 90% confidence interval. So it's like, okay, it's between a thousand and a million apples or something like that. What's, what's that range that you're 90% confident it fits within that range? And even people who consider themselves, you know, relatively math oriented, they'll give a 90% range and it only fits within that range, like 40 or 50%. And so recognizing that our baseline is to be way overconfident. But the interesting is, thing is, if you do this exercise multiple times, those ranges start to become more and more close and your confidence level lines up, starts to line up pretty closely with what the actual range is, even if it's something you know nothing about. And so we actually, I think- We, that, we made a yeah. program to actually help train you in that. Oh, uh, there so, we go. So, yeah, on clearthinking.org, it's called Calibrate Your Judgment. And you can, we literally have thousands of 
practice cases where you can practice estimating a probability and then you get to immediately find out whether you're right and it gives you a score uh, to help you train you and like understanding, well, is this an 80% or 90% or 70%? Awesome, cool, we'll put that into the show notes. Yeah, just the notion of that this is something that can be trained, I think is really powerful um, because you know, once you start to develop this confidence that you that hey I'm generally pretty good at making these types of decisions. It reduces this this hesitation, this delay, this fear of making a poor decision because you're able to trust yourself. Um, I think this this kind of relates to the concept of decision fatigue, right? This is something that's become popular in the media now, right? Silicon Valley wear a black shirt every day, or Barack Obama wear the same suit. You have these these routine decisions that we try to eliminate because of decision fatigue. We only have so many good decisions we can make in the day. Thus, we need to save our limited attention for those decisions. What do, what do you think about decision fatigue? Is it a thing? Is this something where you're trying to eliminate routine decisions in your daily life? Well, you know, it's it's funny because there was all this research on decision fatigue and ego, ego depletion, like the idea that like, oh, if you have to exert willpower over and over again, such as making a series of a long series of decisions, uh, you know, it, you tend to have more and more problems the longer you do this. Uh, now there's been this backlash saying, well, maybe this research doesn't hold up as well as we thought. And, you know, replication crisis and social science and all this stuff. Um, so, you know, I, looking at that data, you know, it's a little bit hard to say what's going on. That being said, it's really clear that if you've ever had to make like 40 decisions in a row, you just get increasingly frustrated at least <laughs> and, and annoyed. Like, you know, if you ever, I mean, anyone who like plans a wedding has probably experienced this. You mm-hmm. know, at first you're enthusiastic, but by the time you're trying to pick, you know, do you want green or blue napkin rings, you know, uh, an hour seven, you're probably pretty annoyed. At, uh, so uh, so I, do, I do think that there's something real to that. Uh, and Basically, I think we have to really consider what decisions we want to be making. And there's a couple of different criteria there. One is obviously we want to be making the important decisions and not just leaving them up to you know, a default or something like that. Uh, but the other is sometimes we enjoy making certain kind of decisions and other types we hate making. So for example, there are some people that just love being stylish. They love wearing cool or interesting clothes or being creative in the way they dress. And those people probably should be like choosing their outfit every day. It's like a, it sparks joy for them. Right. Other people just couldn't care less. You know, I'm in this category. I just, you know, it's just clothes or clothes. And so for me, I get very little value out of choosing. And so it's better just to have like only have items of clothing that I basically am fine with wearing and to just grab one of them and, and, you know, make it, make it super easy. Um, So I think that's something that's important. I would also say, that another reason to kind of automate a decision or make it a default is if you have to exert willpower and you find yourself often making the wrong decision. So an example of this, one thing I find helpful is just be like, every day for lunch, I'm going to eat a salad. And that's just like what I eat for lunch. I don't make a decision about lunch. And that helps me eat healthier. Whereas if I actually had to make that decision every day, sometimes I might choose the healthy choice and sometimes I might choose a less healthy choice, right? So I'm trying to actually remove the decision not just because it's fatiguing, but because, you know, I'm thinking about myself in the future and being like, well, maybe I'm going to crave something really unhealthy. Right. Uh, so I think that could be useful too. Yeah. I love the metaphor of choosing what to eat. It's something I talk about with clients all the time, as far as prioritization and the contrast I give is how likely are you going to be to make a really good decision if you go somewhere like the Cheesecake Factory, which has, you know, who, who knows, 20 page menu versus you go to a specialty shop 
where, hey, we've been making ramen for 100 years, or you go to a steakhouse that has steak in the name, okay, I'd probably get the steak, um, that the more options that you give yourself to choose from, the less likely you are to choose a good option. And thus, a big part of making good decisions is immediately being able to eliminate decisions that are dominated. Um, it feels like to me, a lot of this comes down to expected value and what are the values that we're using to make this decision? What's important to us right now? Is, is that something that you've thought about? How can, we, how can we uncover these values that we're looking to optimize for, for a particular decision? Yeah, so I'm of the belief that humans have many, what I'll call intrinsic values. So these are things that we care about for their own sake, not merely as a means to an end. And so just for example, most people care about their own pleasure, right? And they also care about not suffering for, the, for their own you know, bodies. Um, so I would say that's an intrinsic value because if someone said to you like, oh, sure, you like got a lot of pleasure from that, but why do you care? Right. It seems like such a weird question. Like, why do I care? Like, because it's pleasure. That's why I care. Um, you, you know, we, we care about pleasure for its own sake, not just because it gets us something else. Right. On the other hand, I think we have a lot of other intrinsic values that we don't necessarily think about as often, but are, are just as important. Like, for example, um, most people uh, want to believe true things and not believe false things. And even they might be even willing to give up a slight amount of pleasure to like know a lot of true things about the world or something like that. Um, most people have, uh, they care about, uh, uh, other people's well-being as well. Like most people want their children to succeed and achieve their goals, right? Most people want people all around the world to at least be at some minimal level of well-being and so on. So we've tried to map out all the different intrinsic values that people have. We, we, um, ran a study where we, we tr gave people a little training module on what is an intrinsic value. And then we had them submit their intrinsic values and we ended up getting like 3000 submissions and we went through them and tried to duplicate them, categorize them. We also looked at what philosophers say about the topic and psychologists and political scientists and so on. We ended up coming up with 22 categories of intrinsic values. You can actually find that on our, on our website, clearthinking.org. It's called the um, intrinsic values test. And there's a, a cool infographic we made that shows the 22 categories. Um, now I should contrast this with what you might call instrumental values, which are things that you care about only as a means to an end, right? So for example, you might like having a chair in your house, but presumably you don't care about the chair like for its own sake. You care about it because you can sit in it or because it looks nice or something like this. So most of the things that we value are actually instrumental. They're, we don't care about them fundamentally. We just care about them because they get us something else. The intrinsic values are things we're really trying to get deeply, right? Not merely as a means to an end. So what I think about when it comes to decision-making is it's useful to know your own intrinsic values. Like what do you fundamentally care about? And then your decision-making can be directed at trying to create more of the things you intrinsically value. So I can't help myself. Um, I would love to know um, what are your intrinsic values and how did that play into a recent decision that you made? Yeah, so <laughs> my intrinsic values are, uh, I, you know, I, ha I have a bunch. I think most people have a bunch, but some some of the big ones are um, the well-being of people all around the world, uh, the well-being of the people I love specifically, which I, I treat as a different category because, like, I would be willing to sacrifice, you know, the well-being of at least two other people to improve the well-being of someone I love, right? Like, I care about people I love more than, than strangers, as as almost everyone does. Um, I care about my own well-being. So those are three like well-being values. But I also have other values. So for, for example, 
uh, I have intrinsic values around like truth. Like I find it very odious to like spread false information knowingly. Uh, I want to believe true things, not false things. I have, I have um, some intrinsic value around equality. Like, you know, I, I'd prefer, much prefer a world where like there was a nice spread of well-being rather than just like one person is just ridiculously has, you know, all the well-being or something like that, <laughs> a hypothetical scenario. So yeah, I, I, you know, I have quite a few. Um, when I, when it comes to, I don't know if now is a good time to talk about like specific decisions, good and bad decisions. Would you like to go? Yeah. Yeah. I think that yeah. would be great to okay. illustrate. Great. So uh, Chris asked me to like bring today one good decision I made and one bad decision I made. And so I'll start with the, the bad decision first. And, uh, and I'll also tie it into intrinsic values. So um, I used to be uh, involved in a company that I co-founded uh, in the finance space. And basically I feel like I stuck with that company too long. And so I think a, a bad decision I made was, not, was just not leaving earlier. And when I think about my intrinsic values, like what do I really care about? Like one of the primary things I really care about is trying to spread well-being throughout the world. And I just don't think that in that company, I was really had the ability to do that. It just wasn't, you know, based on the goal and the mission of that organization, it just wasn't going to happen. And, you know, I, I think when I joined early on, I said things to myself like, well, I'm going to learn a lot. You know, maybe I can make money on it. Maybe I can build connections. Like there's, there's reasons to do it. They're instrumental, but it wasn't really tapping my intrinsic values of like, I'm actually, you know, helping to create a world that's a better world that I care about. So I think that that, you know, I don't necessarily regret being involved. Like I learned a ton you know, and there were a lot of benefits to that. But on the other hand, I don't think that was a decision that was made like really reflecting on my intrinsic values carefully, uh, especially the decision of like staying longer than I could have. Um, so th that was part of it. Another part of why I think that was not uh, um, the best decision is I think I was suffering from some sunk cost fallacy. And the sunk cost fallacy basically says that uh, when you're trying to decide whether to stop doing a thing that you've already invested in, like invested money, time, effort, emotional energy, uh, the, the funny hu human psychological quirk is that we can continue to feel as though we didn't waste this effort, time, money, et cetera, as long as we keep doing the thing, right? As long as you keep working on it, you think, oh, well, I haven't wasted all that, that stuff. But as soon as you decide to give up on it, then you suddenly pay this really big psychological penalty of feeling like that was all huge waste. And what this does is it can produce an effect where even though the future of a project actually doesn't look good, promising, and you wouldn't pick up that project right now. If someone said, hey, do you want to do this project? You would not pick it up. You continue doing it because you don't want to take the psychological cost of like having accepted all that past stuff as a waste. However, of course, if you think about it carefully, any past investment of time, money, energy, whatever is already gone, regardless of whether you keep moving forward or not. So you, you have to actually think of that as wasted or gone, at least no matter what you do in the future, and then just decide based on future actions. So because I had invested a lot of like emotional energy and time and so on in this, I think I was more reluctant than I should have uh, to move on. I, I think a, a, a third thing that was going on there though, which is also really important is that I was worried about letting people down and upsetting people. And I'm, a, I'm an agreeable personality. Uh, you know, I like people to be happy. I don't like people to be upset. And I think I have to be very careful because of my personality to not put myself in situations where I might do something just not to upset or let down other people if it's not like organically the, the thing that I think I should be doing. And so that also, I think, was something that held me back. And, you know, today I work to be more assertive, uh, but definitely it's something I'm still working on. I really want to uh, dig into the sun cost fallacy because I think it underlies 
uh, so many of our uh, persisting uh, bad decisions where original okay decision that becomes obvious that maybe it's not so good of a decision just keeps on persisting. And it seems like it ties into this this human trait of we want to feel like we're good. And there's a huge pain of I made a bad decision that seems like it causes us to stay in the current context and, if, and actually look for reasons to justify why our decision was good. Um, we see this all the time where the research on buying a car increases after someone has already bought a car, they're looking for reasons why, hey, the car that I bought was a good car. Um, you know, talking in the chat, the whole ritual of marriage is I've committed in front of all of my family and friends, and I've spent a large amount of money on a ring to say, hey, I am really, really committed to this person. And thus, it could be really, really costly to back out of that. It's sort of using some cost as a societal mechanism to keep people committed and together. And it seemed, also seems, um, you know, say in the Twitter world or in the pundit world, that, they're, that culturally we penalize people for changing their mind, right? I forget who the, um, the person who said this was like an Oscar Wilde or, um, you know, I, I forget who the person was, but it was like, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Type of thing. But that someone changing their mind is seen as a sign of weakness or that they don't actually know what's going on. Um, personally, in our own decisions, you know, how do we overcome the societal bias to commitment? How can we recognize when circumstances have changed or our own values have changed and allow ourselves to change course? I think it's something that you've talked about that a lot of making good decisions is just recognizing a decision point that we have the ability to change course and make a different decision. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a really interesting one because in theory, we could be making decisions all the time and yet our defaults are so strong. There's so many things that we've like stopped making any form of decision about. We like kind of forget that they even exist as decision points. Just to give an example, and this is not something I recommend doing, like if you have at least a few thousand dollars in your bank account, you could just move to Thailand tomorrow, right? Like that is a thing that you could do. Well, I don't know about with COVID, but in general. Um, so not to say you should do that, but the point is that like, you're not even, you're almost certainly not even considering that, you know, you're uh, almost certainly uh, that's not a decision point that you have like awareness of. And uh, I just want to illustrate that with almost anything in our lives, we could make more decisions about it. And so that raises the question, when should we? Like, should we think about moving to Thailand tomorrow or not? Um, and so when it comes to making uh, personal life decisions, I, I think there's a couple of criteria we can use for this. One is trying to always be aware of like what our biggest problem in life is. Because something is one of your biggest problems in your life, then you should seriously consider like adding more decisions points around it. Right. Like, for example, let's say you have a lot of depression, right? If you're experiencing a lot of depression, well, you should try, probably try to raise that to awareness and say, what are the decisions I could make around this? Should I go see a therapist? That might be a good idea. Should I download an app that might help me? Maybe that's a good idea. Should I go learn more about it? Maybe I could read a book. Maybe that's a good idea. Should I tell my friends about it that, that I trust and I think it might be helpful? So, um, so the big problem in life, I think that's like one her heuristic for like, I need to go more, make more decisions about this thing. Um, a second heuristic is just, 
what's something I've been doing for a long time that I like, I haven't reconsidered, you know, it's like, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like a, a, a fish in water, you know, the fish doesn't notice that the water is there because it's just so used to it. And this is a funny property of the human brain is that we notice contrast. And so if something is the same all the time, we just stop being aware of it. And, you know, I've had funny experiences where, um, you know, like one day I'll notice, like, there's something on the wall in my apartment. I'll be like, how long was that there for? Was that there for like a year? And I just didn't notice it because I just, you know, I just so used to walking by that spot that it like no, no longer in conscious awareness. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think just trying to take these things that we just take fully for granted and just raise them every once in a while to awareness and be like, huh, that's interesting. I've been doing this thing for a long time. Let me, let me think about that. The third heuristic that I think is useful here is thinking about what's going super well. And then just saying, hey, this thing is like going really well right now. Is there a way I can double down on this or take advantage of this? You know, it's like, I love, you know, for example, maybe you took up a new hobby and you're like, wow, that's really fun. I'm only doing it once a week though. Maybe I should do it three times a week. You know what I mean? Just just uh, trying to find the bright spots. Um, so, the, so there's some things to think about. And, the, and this idea of defaults actually ties a lot into continuing projects because, you know, the sunk cost fallacy, not basically not wanting to admit to ourselves or like accept the loss of having of, of our past expenditure being wasted. That's just one reason we stick with a project that's not going well. There are other reasons too. There's social reasons, which is what I mentioned, like we don't want to let other people down. And, and to a significant extent, it's good not to let other people down, but sometimes that can be a problem as well. But there's also just a default bias where if we've been doing it for a while, we may not even think about not doing it anymore. Um, and so, you know, so I think there's a lot of things pointing in the same direction. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And just a few things I want to build upon that I, I think are really, really apt. So first, the notion of, hey, there is something that is most holding you back. And if you recognize what that is, there's likely a decision point there. So I always refer to that as the bottleneck, what's the weakest link in the chain? Or you know, what is something that keeps coming up that could be going better? There's likely something that you're missing. And being able to limit down the decision space helps to elevate some of those decision points. And when I get into my most guru-y, I always say that everything reduces down to raising your awareness. Um, just the, the name of forcing function comes from the design concept of bringing to consciousness. Is good. Can you do something to just make yourself aware of the opportunity to do something different? In the, um, I think in, in rationality, we refer to these as UG fields. And that the more something has caused us pain in the past, the less that we want to look at them. Maybe we had an error on our taxes or we're a little bit past due on them. And thus, like anything that even makes us consider thinking about taxes, which branches off to personal finances, um, becomes something that we don't even want to look at or think about. And so, so much of the meta skill of improving yourself is the ability to look at the void, to look at what's there, to reorient to reality. Um, you know, another thing from the rationality literature that I love is, you know, in, in building software, much of building software is fixing bugs, things that the software is trying to do that is not executing correctly. And another meta skill is rewarding yourself for recognizing bugs in yourself. 
where if you notice that you take an action that, oh, that's really weird. Like, why did I do that? That doesn't quite feel right. Rather than to flinch from that rewarding, oh, well, everything's already going well. That's that pretty cool that there's this something that I could improve. This could go even better. And so re changing that initial reaction to it, hey, this is something to reward. This is an opportunity for improvement. Because as you said, the there's so many things that we've just been doing as defaults for so long that we've we've cashed those beliefs and we don't even look at them unless there's a decision debt that has accumulated like this old code that just we haven't looked at for a while unless it's full of bugs that we don't want to recognize but hey like our values shift over time we learn more about ourselves and the world and likely these are things that we might want to to re-examine and, you know, I think a lot of this, as you said, um, reduces down to double down or stop where, hey, stop something that's not going well. All right, let's pause, take a little hard look at it and see if there's a different course. Or the one that I think, as you said, is really, you know, ignored is something is going really, really well. Well, that's a really amazing opportunity to double down and see if there's anything more that could come out of that. I'm curious, um, it seems a lot of this is, you know, at least subverted or you reduce the length of time before looking at these areas of your life by having a regular review process. Is this something that you believe in that you do where you sit down kind of regularly and look at different areas of your life? Yeah, I think it's super valuable to just have a periodic review, whether it's quarterly or even just once a year. And you kind of look at the different domains like relationships, work, finances, and just think about, um, you know, what, what is, what's going well, what's going badly. What do I want to try to improve? And of course, you know, realistically, you're not going to be able to do everything on the list. You're going to have to triage it at the end of the day, but then maybe picking a few areas to work on to try to shoot for improvements on over the next quarter. I, I, from a recent review that you did, was there something that comes to mind that came out of that, that you, you know, you recognize a decision point, you decided to do something differently? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, to, I have to admit, I haven't been doing mine recently, so I, I want to get back into it. <laughs> but accountability. Uh, I, I have fallen off the wagon. I'm gonna, I'm gonna cop there. Um, but uh, so one thing that I think about. Okay, so I think the ideal process, if we could do it, is actually to be reflecting on these important things like much more often, but in smaller doses. So rather than wait to, you know, do a once quarterly review, I think the optimal would be like. I have in my mind like these important things and I'm kind of reevaluating them in small snippets of time very often. So, so that is what I aspire to do. But the quarterly review is super valuable, especially as a bridge to eventually getting to the point where you're kind of um, in kind of a more constant review. So for me, I try to always be on top of like, what are my few biggest problems in life? And then what are the opportunities that I'm seeing in front of me and like I'm excited to pursue? And actually that may be a good segue into just talking about a decision that I think went well for me where I, where yeah, by absolutely. that I mean I made a good decision-making process. So, so recently I launched a podcast as Chris mentioned previously and I think that was a really good decision-making process. I actually don't know how it's gonna go in terms of outcomes because I launched it, just launched it literally yesterday. Um, but I am very happy with it. And actually, even if the outcome is not like it becomes popular, I think I'm still going to be happy with it. And so I just wanted to walk a little bit through why and, and you know what I think I did well. So first of all, there were a bunch of parts of starting a podcast that I had uncertainty around and also a kind of ug field of like, ah, I'm not really going to enjoy doing this. 
uh, you know, this is going to be a slog for me. Uh, and those are things around editing the audio, um, doing general like producer type stuff, you know, like for example, like making a website for it, all that kind of stuff. And that went swimmingly because um, I was able to collaborate with someone else on my team who was excited about doing that side of it, Josh Castle, he's my producer and editor. And so suddenly all the like stuff that was nasty to me about doing a podcast, Josh was like, yeah, I'll do that, great. And so that division of labor, suddenly we were both happy doing the, our different parts. And so the, already I like removed a bunch of the negatives right off the bat of make, doing the decision. And so before that, before I found Josh, I, I, you know, I wasn't even sure that I was gonna start a podcast. It was just like an idea. Okay, so then I'm like, okay, good. This is worth a try. But what does it mean to try? Like, how do I experiment in a way where I can get quick feedback? And so the first thing I did is I recorded three episodes. I didn't even buy a nice mic or anything at that point. I just recorded three episodes with friends. So it was really easy and low key. I came up with an idea of what I thought I wanted the, the podcast to be, but it was really an experiment. After I recorded three episodes, I used we actually make a platform called Positly for recruiting people for studies and for feedback. So we uh, we then uploaded the three episodes and actually paid people small amounts of money to listen. We got 70 people to listen to the three episodes. And then we had them fill out a feedback form critiquing the podcast and saying what they didn't like about it, what they did like, how we can make it better, et cetera. So now I've done three episodes, got 70 people's piece of feedback. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, first of all, I see there's a bunch of room for improvement and I have a pretty good idea of what that is. Second, I saw, you know what, even in this rough forum, people actually like this quite a lot. So I was like, okay, that's enough to move to stage two. So then I recorded six more episodes. So now I had nine episodes. I tried to improve based on the feedback. And then I recruited 40 beta testers to listen to, listen to you know, one or more of those nine episodes and do a second feedback round. And that could also help me see, am I getting better? Um, what else do I not know? And also just having a more diverse set of episodes. Okay, now I'd had 110 people give me feedback. I was like, okay, this is really promising. I'm definitely gonna try this out. Um, okay, now what? Well, I started thinking and said, well, launching with my like first episode I ever recorded is probably not a great idea because like I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never <laughs> been a podcast host. So I actually want to record a bunch more episodes to find really strong ones that I can launch with. And so then I went to pursue that. So, so th that I think went really well, this like rapid feedback inter iterative cycle. The last thing I think that, that went well with, with that whole process was that I wanted the podcast to feel fun and not like, so not like eating your vegetables. I wanted it to feel like mm. dessert. So I, I purposely chose a format at the intersection of like what I thought people would want to hear and what I would have a lot of fun doing. And so basically I modeled it on my favorite type of conversation, which is just a fun intellectual conversation with a really smart person where we discuss a bunch of different ideas. So each episode we do a four or five ideas. And so for me, I'm just having a good time. And, and that also just changes it completely because even if my podcast bombs and nobody listens to it, it'd be like, wow, I just had 30 really fun, interesting conversations with interesting people. Like that's still a win. So trying to basically really de-risking it. So that, that was kind of the process I went through and I, and I felt quite good about that. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing. I think it illustrates quite a bit where if you, if you wouldn't mind, maybe I can try to to unpack a little bit yeah, about absolutely. that. So, so first, I love that you identified, hey, what's the crux, what's preventing me from taking action here? And it allow you and it allow you to identify this key assumption that you have that creating a podcast is a big slog and something that I'm not going to enjoy. And that led to being able to run some cheap experiments on, hey, this is something that people are interested in, but also that there's someone who compliments me 
who can take take some of this, this, these aspects that I don't enjoy or don't particularly excel at off my plate and thus it becomes less of a slog. And so you're saying, well, what, what could change that would change my opinion about starting a podcast and make it more fun. And so that, that was, a, that was reflected in the format and the collaboration you did and the testing and the questions that you had all geared towards, you know, changing this implicit belief, driving the decision of podcasts aren't fun to, Hey, podcasts are fun. And I don't need to worry about how many people listen to it or what's going on, but I'm getting to have conversations that I enjoy with people that I enjoy talking to. And thus there really is no risk. And what I think is really cool about that is that a lot of times with decision-making, at least for me, that fear acts as my compass that if there's something that I'm kind of interested in doing, but I'm really afraid, right? Is, is, am I going to like this? Is anyone going to show up to try to see if I can defang or de-risk those fears? Because in and of itself, that there's something I'm interested in doing, but it really scares me, that is a really good indicator of maybe that's a direction that I should explore more. Absolutely. Well, one more question for you, Spencer, and then I have a couple in the q and I want to um, give other people the opportunity to hop in. Uh, just a reminder for those of you guys who are there, if you'd like to ask Spencer a question, you can use the Q&A function at the bottom or upvote the other questions. Um, my last question for you, I mean, I have so many I could, before um, you know, we hand it off to the group, would be this notion of dichotomous thinking. So it's something that I've noticed when I talk to clients about making decisions that particularly, maybe it's the type of clients who come to me, you know, you have these, these cognitive distortions of startup founders or investors where, you know, you need to be both contrarian and right. And so this tends to attract the type of people who see the world in very black and white ways. Um, you know, Steve Jobs famously is like, this is either the greatest person that I've ever worked with or this guy sucks. Um, a recent example, a client I was talking to the other day, um, he, he was presenting me, hey, I'm stuck between these two paths in my life. Um, should I try to build a unicorn, like a billion dollar startup? Or, you know, I'm thinking about just like selling all my possessions and going in a monastery and just like working on my meditation for a while. And just you have these like complete opposite decision points. And it seems, it really reminds me of Buddhism, right? We talk about walking the middle path, that there's a way that transcends and reconciles this natural duality that we fall into, that everything is either black or white. And I know this is something that, that you've talked about before. I'm, I'm curious, like, how do we identify this middle path, this option that we weren't considering? Yeah, so it's funny. We actually ran a study related to this. Uh, we built a tool called Decision Advisor, which you can find on clearthing.org, that helps walk you through big life decisions. And in the process of building that tool, we ran some studies on it. And one study, what we did is we randomized participants to either get a little thing saying, hey, you know, often people don't generate enough options for their decision. Why don't you come up with some more options? But, but we didn't make them do it. We just kind of suggested it. And like, I, th I think if I'm remembering correctly, none of them actually did it, even though we suggested it to them. Um, now, this is a small study, so take it with a grain of salt. But I think, uh, but the other group, the other group, we actually just said, we're just not going to let you move forward in the study until you generate at least one other option you haven't thought of. And every one of them did it. They all generated another option. 
And then if we, when we looked at the end, after they'd gone through the whole decision advisor tool where they considered a decision from many different angles and then they pick an option, about 20% of the group that we had forced to generate another option actually ended up choosing the new option that they hadn't thought of before. Um, so that was super interesting. And, you know, okay, it's a small study, but I think the general principle holds that very often there are more than two options and yet very often we anchor on two. And mm. so what I would say is for a small decision, no problem, just stick with two, you know, do I watch this movie or that movie? Do I get carrots or mushrooms, whatever, fine. For a big life decision that a lot, a lot hangs in the balance, two is just not enough. Like you really should just sit down and force yourself to generate more. And I recommend when you generate them, don't evaluate them during the process of generating them. Just come up with as many options as you can, then come back and then get rid of the junky ones after. But it, it, if you mix the kind of critiquing the options with the generation process, it tends to hold back your thinking. So I, you know, one a classic one that I just have seen a lot is people are like, should I quit my job or should I stay with my job? And it's possible that it, those are your only two options. But it's also possible you could talk to your boss and say, hey, you know, I'm really interested in this topic. Is it possible my role could change somewhat? Or maybe there's a lateral transfer at your company. Or maybe your company offers moving down to part-time and then you could do another job on top of it or whatever. I'm not saying that's available in your particular line of work. I'm just saying that they, it might be and it might be worth investigating. Um, so very often there are other ways of thinking about your problem. Uh, it's probably not, <laughs> there's probably not just two actual options. Yeah, I, I thought that was really, really well put of not mixing the generation of options with the choosing of options. Or think about this as you don't you don't write a first draft and try to edit that first draft at the same time. You know, if you want to brainstorm, hey, what are all the things that I could choose from? What's my menu of options? And then you try to later after you've you've exhausted yourself, which is generally beyond the point at which you think you can, right? So generate as many as you can, take a break, and then generate five more. Um, that if you separate out this, this process and come back to it, okay, now that I have all the options, which one should I choose? You'll generally make a much better decision because you have all of the options available to you. Yeah, um, I'll, just, I'll just say that if you're trying to help someone else make a decision, I think there's a really key thing here as well, which is a, very often a friend will say, oh, you know, I'm trying to decide between A or B, which should I do? What do you think? Like I find it super useful to step back for a second and say, okay, that, those are potentially good options, but like, what are you trying to achieve? Let's talk about that. First. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, then, yeah. And then once we talk about that, it becomes clear that like there's actually C and D and E and F, uh, and you know, it might actually be worth including those in the conversation too. So, yeah, one question that I love there is, hey, imagine we're talking again in a year and this has gone amazingly well describe that to me, you know, where mm -hmm. are you? What's going on? What does that feel like? That's and just one, yeah. by creating those two different images where someone is now and where someone where it wants to be, um, not only are they able to kind of visualize what is that path from getting from A to B, and, but also it starts to generate some of this creative tension around, well, what are these things that I'm not doing now? And so it, it said it takes it from a little bit away from this black and white and more towards, well, what's, what's a path towards what I want to achieve? Mm -hmm. A question here from uh, Julian. Um, so Julian wants to know, how do you go about trusting your gut? So, you know, there's a lot of fascination. How can we harvest our subconscious through our intuition, right? The, the decision rests in this like metaphorical place around your stomach. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so is intuition a thing, you know, how do you know when you can trust it? 
Yeah, great question. I actually have a TEDx talk on this. So that, that's my complete answer is watch my TEDx talk, but I will give you a quick recap. <laughs> um, so first of all, the most common thing that I see is that people just trust their, they just think you should trust your gut. Like if your gut tells you something, go with it. That's the most common mistake I, I see. The second most common mistake I see is that people ignore their gut. And they think, ah, well, your gut's not reliable. There's all these biases that are known. You should just like think about the decision and make that and your gut's just misleading you. Those are both, I just wanna make this really clear. Those are both bad ways to make decisions. Uh, with the right way to make a decision in my view is to try to understand that A, your gut always contains information. You should always be trying to get that information and use it in your decision-making process. And B, try to understand when is your gut or intuition more reliable and when is it less reliable and trusting it different amounts. If you imagine your gut is kind of an expert, but it's not an expert in everything, right? It's an expert in some things. You better find out what it's an expert in and what it, what it sucks at, you know, in order to know whether to trust it. Um, so I have a, a simple framework that I created called the FIRE framework, F-I-R-E. It's a quick guide to when, to when to just go with your gut. Like when should you just say, okay, my gut says X, I'm going to do X, right? Versus when are you going to use reflective decision-making? And I'll talk a moment what I mean by reflective decision-making. But okay, so when should you go with your gut? When it's a fast decision, F, right? It's like a car is just suddenly swerved at your car and like you don't have time to think. You have to react. You have no choice. The second is an irrelevant decision. You know, like, well, what should I get in my salad? doesn't matter. Just go with your gut. It's, it's, it's not worth thinking about. Um, a repetitious decision. So this is where you've made many decisions like this one in the past, but critically, you also have to have gotten feedback on how they turned out. Mm. And I want you to use it. My favorite visual metaphor for this is imagine you're doing archery. And so you've got a bow and arrow and you're firing at a target. Okay. So you fire an arrow, you see how close it is to the target, you adjust, you fire again, you adjust, you fire again. If you do that long enough, even if no one's teaching you, you'll gain some skill at archery, right? Now imagine the same thing, but you are doing it blindfolded. <laughs> you will never get good at archery. Your arrows will just go all over the place. You'll never learn to get better because you'll never see if you had a good shot or what direction you need to adjust it and so on. Now let's imagine something in between. Let's say you fire an arrow and for some weird reason, you don't get to look for half an hour where it hit the target. Now here, hypothetically, you could learn, but think about how difficult it would be. Like you'd have to fire one arrow, wait half an hour, go check its position, try to remember, well, what exactly was I doing with my body? Make some kind of slight tweak, right? So it's gonna slow it down a lot. So, so the critical thing for repetitious decisions is if you made many decisions like this before and you've gotten feedback on how they worked, then you can, look, you can trust your gut. And the, the best example I know of this is like chess, right? I mean, you look at Magnus Carlsen play chess, um, he literally played a chess match against three pretty good players where he had about like three or four seconds to make each move. And they got like much, much longer to make each move. And he beat all of them. And he was blindfolded <laughs> during that time. So, uh, and it's because he just played the chess so much that his, uh, his intuition is amazing. And then, okay, the last type of decision, E, evolutionary. There's a small number of decision types where we're, it's actually literally built into us the same way like a cat knows how to make certain types of decisions. We do as well. And they tend to be things that are very physical. Like there's a sudden loud booming noise, like get the hell out of there. Like maybe it's nothing, but like you probably, it's not worth it, right? Just get out of there. Or another example would be like, there's some meat and it smells rancid. Don't eat it. You should not be using your reflective decision making. Okay, last thing I wanna say about this. What do I mean by reflective decision making? So let's say you don't go with your gut because it's not a fire decision, right? Well, your reflective decision making is basically using your like system two, working memory, consciousness, careful thought but you should be using your intuition 
for its information, right? So it's not ignoring your intuition. It's saying, okay, I'm going to really think this through. I'm going to use my reflection. One of the things I'm going to reflect on is like, what is my gut telling me? And is it, what information is there? So for example, let's say you're thinking about giving a talk and your gut's feeling really nervous about it. And then you can reflect, okay, why am I feeling nervous? Is it just because like the idea of being in front of a bunch of people kind of spooks me? Well, that, thank you, God. I appreciate your input, but, but that's not a good reason not to give this talk, right? Or maybe the gut actually has a point. Maybe there's something about the setting that actually is not a good thing for you and you should avoid it, right? So it's just about reflecting what is your gut telling you and why? All right, I'm done with that. <laughs> It's a great talk, by the way. Highly recommended. And yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for the executive summary. Uh, it, it makes me think of systems thinking, where uh, you know the one of my favorite uh, all time articles, you know, leverage points in a system, or you see this illustrated uh, in the uh, the 60s, there is this leaked document from the CIA where the CIA tried to infiltrate large corporations and sabotage them. And the best method that the CIA found to sabotage corporations was to increase the delay between decisions being made and receiving feedback. So let's make committees, mix link them as large as possible. Let's, uh, you know, change numbers in the spreadsheet or magically lose files, anything we can do to increase the, just the time between making a decision and receiving feedback decision. That's how you, you sabotage organizations at scale. It's something else that you know, John Boyd has talked about with the OODA loop, where you know, if, if someone has a long delay between make, taking an action and receiving feedback from that action, they start to operate off of an outdated map of reality and their decision-making process becomes more and more divorced from that reality. And that's this idea to get inside this loop that they're, the, the decisions that they're making are based off of more and more incorrect information. Cool. Um, two more, I think we got time for. So, so a quick rapid fire one. Um, I think on, on the clear thinking site, you guys must have dozens of decision biases that we must be aware of. Do you have a pet favorite decision bias that we must be particularly aware of? You know, well, one that's kind of close to my heart is overconfidence because I've done a bunch of studies of my, my own on this. And it's, it's pretty fascinating the way that we tend to be overconfident in many things. But something that people don't realize about this, there's actually things that humans are systematically underconfident in. So here, here's a fascinating one. Driving a car, like this classic result that like something like 70% of people will say they're above the median, like, which is, that's mathematically impossible. It's not impossible for 70% of people to be above the mean, that's actually possible. But people, about 70, more than 70% more than will think they're above the median, which is mathematically impossible. However, what if you say driving a race car? Then people, a lot of people, walk, like, I think you even get an effect where the majority of people say they're below the median, which is fascinating. So what's going on there? It has something to do about the easiness of skills and the, uh, and the subjectivity of skills. Like, so if a skill is really easy, it's one we do a lot, we tend to think we're good at it, right? On the, and on the other hand, if a, sub, if a skill is more subjective, like what does it mean to be good at driving? Does that mean you drive fast? Does that mean you don't break the law? You know, I mean, there's a classic thing where, you know, sometimes men think women are bad drivers, but it turns out women get in the way of fewer accidents. So it's like, what is your definition of a, a bad driver exactly? Because uh, women actually on the objective measure are doing a lot better. Um, 
So, uh, so with, with these kind of easy subjective decisions, we tend to be more likely to think we're better than the median. But on these hard, like more objective measures, like ra ra racing a race car, it's a clear objective. It's like, get to the other side fastest. And then people are like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. So, so I think that's a fascinating one to go, be, you know, with so many of these things, there's like a level one understanding, which like humans are overconfident. Then there's a level two understanding, which is like, actually the world's complicated. And turns out we're often overconfident, but then there's some exceptions and the exceptions can be super fascinating to dig into. Well, thanks. Uh, final question for today comes in from Tom. Um, this is one that, that comes up for me a lot with clients. Um, so Tom's saying, you know, right now, top of mind for me is clarifying what type of work goal that I want to set right now. Do I want to stay with my current employer? Do I want to change companies, change roles, do a side thing? Um, you know, so how, how do you think broadly about these types of decisions where, hey, do I take a role, different role in another company? Do I pursue a full-time business. I think this, this relates a little bit to, you know, sub-cost fallacy. Um, you know, how, how does, should someone approach this type of major career change? Yeah, well, there, there's, uh, there's a classic framework, which is, although very classic, I think very useful, which is like, you're trying to find work that's at the intersection of like, stuff you can get paid enough money for to support the kind of lifestyle you want, stuff you're good at, stuff you enjoy doing, and ideally stuff that gives you meaning, right? And it's like you imagine that four-way intersection of the Venn diagram. If you can get those four things, that tends to make for like a really amazing career. Maybe you can only get three, maybe you can only get two, but like that, that's, I think, something to aspire to. So that's one heuristic. Another heuristic that can be useful is just thinking about like, am I learning the, the stuff that takes me to where I want to eventually get? Because I think it's very easy for, because of default bias and the many other factors to be in a job where we're kind of doing the same thing. And at first that's like a great learning opportunity. And then like, you know, two years in, it's just like, we're not challenged anymore. We're not pushed to the edge of our ability. Uh, we're not learning new things. And so we've kind of stagnated. And so that's another heuristic. It doesn't mean you should necessarily, maybe you love that job. Maybe you want to be the rest of your life. Fine. But if you don't want to be the rest of your life and you no longer learning, that's a bad sign. It means you, you, it might be time to think about either changing roles if you can, or maybe looking for, for other work where, that pushes you more. Yeah, it's like the whole employment model is, you know, underpaying people who are underqualified and they, they, they slowly but surely become overpaid and overqualified as they move up the <laughs> learning curve. And oh, it's, I think a good thing to be aware of with, with anything that you've been persisting in is have you reached the point of diminishing returns? There's a really good place to be aware of. Um, you know, Spencer, forgive me if I, if I butcher the parameters of this, this experiment, but one of my favorite experimental results is they had some people who were considering making a major life decision, such as should I change careers? And what they had these people do was flip a coin Heads, you leave the job. Tails, you stay in the job, right? Obviously, completely random whether they do it or not. But what they found was the people who got heads and left their job were far and away much more happier when they were asked afterwards that they had made the big decision. And that being the key takeaway is that if you are considering taking the leap, then you should almost always take the leap. And that on average, you will be much happier have you make the big decision to change rather than persist in your current situation? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. I would just add a caveat that these are people that were so conflicted that they literally were willing to take the bet of a coin. So of course, yeah. if, you're, if you're at that point, yeah, then it seems like, 
you know, leaving is, seems to on average be, be better for people than staying. That being said, I would also say that's like a level one model. There's, a, there's better models in Flamingo. And so I would advocate you use one of those. Uh, but for small decisions, you can flip a coin. Yeah, it was one of the uh, the villains. Uh, maybe it was Two Face or uh, the guy from New Country for Old Men. Or you flip the coin, um, not to see if it comes up heads or tails, because but because when the coin is in the air, then you know which outcome you're rooting for. It's like all of a sudden now you have something at stake. Um, so that's a kind of cool way to see, hey, which is the one that you're you're most inclined towards. Yeah, flip a coin um, and see if you're really disappointed in <laughs> which way it landed, and it can give you some evidence. Yeah. Spencer, thank you so much for, for talking about uh, decision-making today. I think it's, it's such a critical topic. And, you know, I really respect, appreciate the work that you have done to translate these findings into things that people can do to implement into their own lives and thus make better decisions and have better lives. Um, you know, any final thoughts for today? Anywhere you'd like to send people if they'd like to learn more? Well, if you're grappling with a big life decision, try our decision advisor tool. It walks you through the process to try to make it somewhat easier and, and make it more systematic. Um, so that would be my number one recommendation. I also on my blog, spencergreenberg.com, I wrote an article about how to make really hard decisions. And uh, some people have found that useful. It, it talks about many different strategies. Um, and so you can kind of then pick which one of these strategies actually seems appropriate for my particular case. Thank you. Yeah, we'll make sure to uh, link those in the show notes. Um, with that, we're going to sign off for today. Thank you so much for being here, Spencer. And thank you guys so much for your great questions. Thank you, Chris. Great to, great to have you all here. Bye. See you all again next month. Thank you for listening to the Forcing Function Hour. At Forcing Function, we teach performance architecture. We work with a select group of 12 executives and investors to teach them how to multiply their output, perform at their peak, and design a life of freedom and purpose. Make sure to subscribe to Forcing Function Hour for more great episodes, or go to forcingfunctionhour.com to sign up for our newsletter so you can join us live. Mm -hmm.